This is Shock Award Speak. <laughs> oh man, welcome back to Shock Award Speak. We are back once again. Um, it is me, Doctor Snack Smell. Yes. <laughs> hey, and if you don't believe it. Yeah, that's, that's his snack bag. They're here. Total, yeah, that's totally a snack <laughs> Here's the thing. His other nickname is Snack Bag, but we don't use it that much. <laughs> it's been a while since you've given me a new nickname. So yeah, it's been just, three years, man. Snack Bag is on <laughs> Snack Bag is back on the menu. I'm boys. glad I could witness this. <laughs> snack Bag. It's so terrible. Oh, <laughs> uh, dude. <laughs> yeah, so uh, Ryan's here. <laughs> Um, yeah, and uh, an, another person who has been given nicknames uh, is not present again this week, but it's okay. We're going to get him back in. He's we coming promise, back. Yeah. Uh, Cody Spice. He's actually out in the uh, middle of New Mexico doing peyote with um, over at where Georgia O'Keefe is from with Ken Gilbertson. Yeah, I mean, so sense. he met Ken. They're doing peyote, or they or maybe the tw- the text said they they pet they petted a coyote. I can't remember, but they're in New Mexico. I don't know the spelling was really yeah, all it was off. So. Um, Maybe both. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll hear from him when he gets back. Yeah, we'll let, yeah. So let us know. Send us a text. Uh, spell check it. Let us know what's up. Yeah, Cody. Because peyote, peyote and peyote coyotes Cody. are very different things. Both could be dangerous. Yeah, <laughs> peyote Cody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, we're here. Uh, we're back, and we're popping back into the entrepreneurship series again. And we've got another wonderful guest with us. Yes, um, who has been a longtime friend of the gallery. A uh, wonderful person that we've known for quite a while that does uh, something that my dad said I could do if I hadn't been so lazy with math. Oh, whoa. <laughs> um, Katie, are you good at math? I mean, if I have to be, okay. I can be. <laughs> That's didn't, right. Didn't That's love right. it. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> okay. I never loved it either. I like geometry, dad, though. My dad was also not wrong about that. <clears throat> um, I mean, you do have to add occasionally. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's fair. It's fair. Um, and, and now we're going to finally introduce you to the person and what we're even talking about. So we do have our good friend, Katie Cortez, here with us. And Ooh, she is hello. an architect. And this is great because we have we have referenced architecture, I think, a number of times throughout different episodes yes. um, that we've had. But this is the first architect yeah. we've had on the show. Dude, so, there should be like balloons falling down. We finally got an architect in here, which is super wow. exciting. Yeah. Architect, well, so. design. Yeah, all the things. And, and I love talking about it. I Historic, I've, like I've known to you, paint. I've known you I to like paint to draw. And draw and collage. So, I mean, you, yeah, I do it all. you're like a, a visual DJ. Hence the architecture and design. That's right. It's all the things. Yeah. Yeah, so welcome, Katie. Thank you. Thank you for Thank joining you for having us. Me. So, Katie, we're going to jump in. Do it. But first, so <laughs> what we want to talk about is, is kind of where you're at uh, because we're on the entrepreneurial mm-hmm. podcast series you know our little series um you know i want to get into what you're doing right now and sort of like the reality of what you're doing right now but before we do that we you know we you know i know a lot of podcasts do this but we just love to compile and get a sense of where people come from Mm -hmm. you know it doesn't got to be exhaustive but um because you do have your hand and historically have had your hand in several things Love to hear like um, maybe some of the highlights of like where you started, mm-hmm. just getting into visual making, design, painting, yeah. collaging, what, whatever, and all of it. And how does that get? How did that get you to um, to architecture? You know, where did you study that kind of thing? Yeah. Okay. So I was probably seven or eight actually when I decided I wanted to do architecture because I always loved art. Mm-hmm. I like doing art, drawing, painting, all the things when I was little but specifically really liked illustration. I was really intrigued by comic books, book illustrations, stuff like that. 
Um, but somehow I felt like that was just um, more of an exclusive career. I was like, can you actually have this as a career? Or do you just have to be, you know, this crazy illustrator that works for Disney or something? So I'm just practical. And I was like, dude, I just need to have a job. I want to do something that involves being creative and art as a job. So architects do that. I have an aunt who's an architect and I was like, you know, they draw for a living. So that's what I'm going to so do. So you got to and see your, your, your aunt so working as an architect or? I knew she was an architect. Mm -hmm. I don't think I knew what she did on the day to day, but I right. knew enough about what she did that it was like, she's a creative person. Just like that. So I was like, well, I'll just do that. I mean, that's people hire architects for stuff. And if I can so basically- you already thinking about career as a seven year old? So, so the backstory of that is I started working with my dad at his company. He owns his own company when I was like five. Okay. So I was introduced pretty early to, okay, you get a job yeah, and that's how you provide for yourself. So yeah, it's weird. Wow. It was really early and that's just always been the thing. So I just always then pursued art and painting through school, mm -hmm. but with the guise of, well, I'm going to be an architect. Mm -hmm. So then got into, but specifically once I got older, I thought I was gonna do more like historic preservation or like get into historic architecture is really critical of modern architecture, anything mm -hmm. modern. Then I went to, got undergrad and grad degrees in architecture, obviously, and then started working at a medium sized firm here in Richmond, did some larger scale and smaller scale stuff for a while, like worked on Main Street Station, that's fairly notable for people who are in Richmond, did the Virginia War Memorial, then worked at a firm that was much smaller, doing smaller scale stuff, mostly residential. And then in November, started my own firm. Wow. So that's sort of brief trajectory. So what is the, what is the timeline? So you, you, get, you get out of uh, grad school mm -hmm. to now, like what's that time period? 12 years. Okay, so that's, that's a, lot of, a lot of good experience in 12 years. Yeah, um, yeah I was very lucky. And, and as somebody who doesn't know the field, obviously the way you do, um, would, would you say that the, the kind of um, going out on, on your own, making your own firm, is that is that like a normal thing? Is it kind of like a 50-50? Like you, maybe you don't see it a lot? I'm, I'm like, what's it like? I think it depends on the person. Like I actually never, when I was in school and even early in my career, I don't think I ever thought I was going to. Mm. <clears throat> so for me, it was sort of one of those things I just realized after working for a few years. And I was like, you know, I don't know that I'm going to be able to practice and fulfill what I want to do professionally and personally if I'm working under somebody else. Mm -hmm. So for me, it was that, I think it just depends. I feel like a lot of people who do residential work do because you don't have to necessarily have a very large firm. Mm. But if you're doing a lot more commercial stuff, I mean, mm -hmm. I think it's easier to fall in under a larger firm and kind of take on a principal role or something. So in grad sense. school, what, how, how are you being prepared to enter into architecture like from a grad... Like in grad school, what are you doing? Like, so, cause you know, for, for, um, depending on what you go to graduate school for. So like with, you know, if you're, if you're me, mm -hmm. you're setting boundaries, you know, in a lot of ways you're setting parameters for yourself, not better or worse is different, setting parameters for yourself. And then you're executing a thesis that you've proposed and you've worked on, you know, different ideas, different paintings between the first and second year, this kind of thing. And you've got feedback and, you know, your classes and then, and then you materialize your, your final show. And that's kind of it. I mean, I mean, it's like, you know, and then, and then there's the step into the gallery system or whatever your goals are when you're, you know, you're not, um, I don't know. I mean, you're, you're not building a, you know, you're not a part of a, an actually built thing necessarily. Mm -hmm. So how does, how does graduate school prepare you? Like, what was that like? I think it depends on the type of program you go to. So I 
I intentionally chose an undergrad and a grad program that focused more heavily on like the design and the theoretical. Mm-hmm. I mean, you still get like your structures classes, you still get like a building systems class. So you're learning, you know, you're learning the mechanical systems and the plumbing systems, but it's more heavily focused on design and theory. Okay. And then they kind of encourage you. I mean, you take, you know, you they encourage you to use Revit or modeling software mm-hmm. so that when you do get a job, you have some marketable skills. Um, but they encourage you to, to find internships in summers okay. and, and stuff like that. So I felt like it was mostly academic and then it's mm-hmm. like, you're kind of put into the world. Hopefully, you know, somebody's going to take you under their wing and then it's, you just got to learn, Yeah, you know, it's sort of like immersive learning, like right. you just start, here's a project, <clears throat> go at it. So the entrepreneurial spirit, which we've kind of talked about in the past, like episodes, as far as definitions go. That's sort of already showing up then because you're having to mm-hmm. hustle for internships mm-hmm. and then that carries out into like how you approach getting, getting with a, uh, a firm or whatever. So like, yeah. were you, um, like, how did that go for you? Was it built out of like an internship first and they recognized a value in you or were you able to just go interview and get, yeah, I, you know, you make a portfolio at the end of, you know, whenever you're done, like I'm sure like any other design school. And I just went and interviewed at places. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Got a job. And what was that like for you? Stressful, not stressful. The interview process. Yeah. Dude, I was ready. I was like, yeah. I was just, I mean, I love school, but I was like, I just want to move on with my life. I'm ready to just start doing this stuff. So I was just like, but it was also coming off the recession of like 2008. So jobs mm-hmm. were slim. Um, so I just wanted anything. I was just like, I'm yeah. So you were you were time. sitting. That's a, I think that's interesting to think about because we're kind of in a tipping point that is mm-hmm. has some parallels to it, mm-hmm. which is interesting to think For about. Sure. So when you're you're like, I just want in. Can you talk about like the weight of the uh, your first substantial involvement in a substantial project that has like because you know you go from theoretical to consequential, and there's like everything that I don't know. There's the legal stuff. Yeah. There's Zoning, well, that, yeah. yeah, I mean that I didn't, I didn't get dumped into that stuff till, yeah. you know, you kind of work under somebody and you're, you're in it, but you're not necessarily doing it right away. So mm-hmm. I started, I mean, the first couple of years I was exposed to a lot of that stuff, mm-hmm. but I was focusing more on design. So okay. I was doing things that, yeah. you know, it's like, I could, I could feel pretty confident, comfortable doing this. And then you start to gain some of that other experience. And that, that was my experience. I don't know you know, yeah. people, I know yeah, sometimes yeah. like if you go to work for a larger firm, you can get pigeonholed into doing like bathroom layouts all day, Yeah, which doesn't really teach you anything. Sure. So my experience was lucky that I, I had a couple job offers and I went with this firm in Richmond because I felt like it was a small enough firm. I would get more exposure. Yeah. So I specifically did that because that's what I wanted. I wanted to get in. I wanted to get exposed to a lot of stuff and just really mm-hmm. just get going with my yeah. career. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, is there a particular project that you we, you look at it and you go like that? That is very satisfying. You know, is there one you can you can tell us? Is there one that we can see? Well, Main Street Station's like literally four blocks away from us, yeah. <laughs> and that's a project. You know, I was one of many people that worked on it, but that was a project that I worked on for probably over the course of eight years. It was oh, actually, wow. I think, what brought me to the firm that I I got a job at. Um, and so I kind of was on it for a little bit conceptually. Then it stalled for a while because there was a lot of federal funding and things like that. And then it kind of came 
on and offline. And then I was involved in the design process and then it was kind of out mm -hmm. for construction. And then I came back in to help finish out some of the construction administration. But that was, you know, to be able to see a project from beginning to end, be involved in all sort of the phases of it in some capacity and then have it be such a fixture yeah. in the place where you live is super big. Yeah, for those listening, you can definitely look it up online. It, you yeah. know, we're just a couple blocks down from it as, as far as yeah. our gallery and our yeah. recording studios, and it's really beautiful. It's, beautiful it's deceptively structure. huge. It's you, very yes. you can't appreciate how big it is yeah. until you actually walk inside. Yeah. And then you almost lose sense of yourself. It's almost like um, the horizon, if you, you come yeah. from, you know, into it, the horizon uh, just disappears. It's so big in there. You, yeah. you get kind of swallowed up in this huge. Yeah, it's also, I mean, when you see a train pull up next to it and you see the scale of it compared to the length of a train, you're like, yeah. oh, this is, a, this is a freakishly big building. It's yes, big. yeah. But the the amount of stuff I just learned on one, that one project alone mm. was transformative for me because it was just, it was everything. It was the design. It was, there was a lot of historicity in that, which I really loved. Um, there's the zoning stuff, the code stuff, like all the just everything you could mm -hmm. need to know about like an architecture project almost happened on that project. Um, so, I mean, all projects are satisfying in different ways, but that is the one that I feel like I just learned so much that carries through into, you know, some aspect of what I'm doing wow. every day. So you mentioned historicity and I think that's, that's something that when you were kind of talking about your story, uh, something that I never knew that I learned just this morning was that when you started out, you were very like kind of opposed to like modernist ideas in architecture. Yeah, I hated it. Um, so can you talk about like where that kind of early leaning came from and then how it shifted or didn't shift or changed over time? So where I grew up in Pennsylvania, um, it's North of Philadelphia and it's kind of like one of those iconic Pennsylvania places. If you see a covered bridge or, you mm -hmm. know, an old bank barn or a stone house, that's probably from where I'm, where I grew up in Bucks County. So I was just around a lot of that historically rich stuff. And my dad was, uh, is an auctioneer. So he deals a lot with like antiques and mm. furniture. So I just, I think I was just around a lot of old stuff. We always went to museums a lot when I was a kid. And, you know, my dad was gonna be a history teacher, didn't. But so there's just, I feel like my family is just very much about history and learning history and understanding history. So I think some of it was that. And <clears throat> I was really interested, you know, once I got older and started thinking more theoretically and philosophically about architecture, it wasn't just like, oh, I just want to draw all day. I started actually getting into the meat of it. I was super interested in sense of place. And for me, being able to understand place in light of what was and the context and all those things was a really intriguing concept. So I kind of gravitated to that in high school and then carried that through, you know, undergrad, graduate school, even to today. Mm -hmm. And so for me, like modern architecture just felt so void of that richness. And then once I got into undergrad and graduate school, I think my perceptions changed because you just open up to a different world. Yeah. You know, you're talking about different stuff. So I don't, I don't hate modern architecture anymore. I'm not a, a historic architect. I would say I'm a contemporary, you know, timelessly contemporary or something. But um, so that's kind of what it was. For me, it was about the fact that I felt like modern architecture didn't have the richness that historic architecture did. Not that I wanted to replicate, just mm -hmm. replicate history, but it felt to me like there was something, there was something about it that was missing. It felt like there was something about it that was very like self-seeking. It was more about itself than about 
serving other people or meeting need or function or place or materials or anything. It was just sort of like, here's a building that wants to just make a statement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, we've had conversations in the past where we talked about things like visual vernacular and, you yeah. know, the vernacular of architecture specificity to, to, to area. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and even the other day, Ryan and I were mm-hmm. driving around and we talked about how like within the neighborhoods, even with our own city, like, you could show me a photo of a house and I could probably tell you within about a half mile where it is. Where it is, yeah. And that um, is because there is a, there's a, there's a specificity because Richmond is an old city that had mm-hmm. building spurts at different points throughout history. So yeah. stylistically different things were there, but also because uh, materials are a thing. <laughs> Proximity is a thing. Uh, interconnectedness of people and the way that the built environment impacts or negatively or positively that, you know, so there's a lot going on there. Um, and it sounds like your, your, your past in, in Pennsylvania growing up, like it was really, you were, you were coming up with a very rich visual, like architectural vernacular that was yeah. a comfort space for you. Um, within how you, how you, uh, execute a design based on a client's wishes, desires, and needs, how much of that vernacular do you think bleeds through? Do you have to like fight against your sort of like early life inclinations, to like listen fully to the client, like how much of that is kind of a battle for you and how much is just not? You mean, do I think that if I'm doing a project for a client, it should look like Or just like, I guess the biggest question is really like how much of your own preference do you feel goes into the buildings that you design? That's a tough one mm-hmm. because I feel like architecture is very much a service. I mean, somebody's coming to me saying, here's my vision, here's my dream. Um, they're not usually saying, I want it to look this particular way, mm-hmm. but it's about meeting certain functions. Some people are just like, I've just always wanted to build my own house or I've always wanted to do this. Yeah. So I feel um, a particular weight in order to meet a client's needs first. Mm-hmm. But to a certain extent, it's also kind of like handwriting. Like it's still coming out of me and my experiences or my aesthetic inclinations, like there are just certain materials I'm not going to use because I don't think they should be part of the built environment. <laughs> you right. know, like yeah. there's just certain things that I'm just like, uh. um, so I'm not going to throw it out to a client, but it's still very much about listening to what their inclinations are. And I think, you know, a lot of times, especially working with residential clients, you can figure out pretty quickly what you think they would like, mm-hmm. but it's like the whole design process is more about me thinking, you know, what does Gareth want to see every morning when he wakes up? You know, what does Ryan want to look at out the window mm-hmm. when he's drinking his coffee at breakfast in the morning? It's all about like thinking about, okay, what is this person just really going to appreciate? And then figuring out the manifestation of what that is architecturally and spatially or materially. But it's sort of like the, the subject of it is that client. You know, I mean, the way it comes out varies because, you know, certain people just have inclinations towards certain things, but... No, that makes sense. I mean, it's the same way I think that you know, like designers that aren't doing things like the built environment. Mm-hmm. Um, so like graphic designers, think they, they balance it the same sort of way where it's like you, yeah. can't, you can't really take yourself out of the equation. Yeah. But at the same time, it's not the primary focus. Yeah. So you have an ability to, to kind of check some things at the door, um, which works more or less. Um, but also I think, um, do, you, do you find that um, throughout the last 12 years post-grad school, have you found that... Um, there are people that 
is, is architecture a field where people kind of gravitate to an architect because they're like, Oh, they kind of are doing things that I like. And so I, they pair themselves up that way. Or is it other big considerations that really define the relationship? I think it's mostly that, I mean, you gravitate, it's like, if you're going to be creating space that I'm going to be in, I want to make sure that you're going to create space that I actually want to be in. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, yeah. I mean, knowing what people have done before and making sure that there's that click, I think is pretty big. And it's also from, I mean, it's from the client to the architect perspective, but it's also from the architect to the client perspective. Like if someone comes to me and says, you know, I want you to design me a mobile home, I'd probably be like, I don't do that. Yeah. Like that's just sort of not my realm. And that's probably a, that's probably a fair thing to say, right? Because it's it, it, like you're saying, if this is a service, then they are better served having someone else do that. Right, exactly. Yeah, it, it makes total sense. Yeah, plus there's, there's relative capacity relative capacities as there is with everything mm-hmm. and somewhere in the equation. So, you know, you keep saying in the service of, and that's an orientation mm-hmm. and a leaning mm-hmm. and uh, within that orientation and leaning, there's like, um, like some people style, some people creatively have such strong stylistic inclinations that, you know, there's a few things that, that can happen. One is, they intuitively rest on the stylistic mm-hmm. inclinations. So they filter requests through to um, a style, their stylized version of the request. Right. And, and that's just, it's a thing, you know, it's not good or bad, it's just what it is. Some people, um, do it, they do it unconsciously, some people do it consciously. And, and then you have some people that lack a certain, um, kind of sense of self in, in, in who they are as a maker. Mm-hmm. And so they, they're really dependent upon appropriation yeah. and um, appropriation to the ends of satisfying like reasonably well or, or bare minimum well the request of a client. And so you get kind of benign job got done, but it almost, it's as if anybody could have done it even right. though. And then you have, I think, uh, the person who is egocentric and it's like, I'm going to do it. It's going to be my way. And then it becomes like a, a question of like, how, how noted are they? And yeah. the more notoriety there is, the greater the possibilities they can execute yeah. the project. And, and then all of that, just the, the last thing that I'm thinking about is, um, you have your depth of understanding wedded to how much you're still learning, yeah. which continues to open up new possibilities. So, you, so you know, you become versatile mm-hmm. over time and can assert a strong stylistic leaning when, when someone wants it, but can also uh, be absolved into the vision of someone else. But also I think to me, it seems a good architect can lean on a vision that accounts for. Mm-hmm. So like you can lean on your style, you can lean on, but if you, if you mm-hmm. can um, clarify a vision, then you lean on the vision that is agreed upon, whether it ebbs in, in any one of those like constellation points. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I think that's true of, of a lot of, you know, I think that is true of a lot of like design-based client mm-hmm. work in any, any sort of mm-hmm. sphere, you know, yeah, like yeah. at the end of the day, there is something about depth of capacity uh, and depth of uh, vision, which I mm-hmm. think is something you can grow at. You know, I don't, yeah. I don't think it's like a static or fixed thing. Um, but uh, it definitely makes for an interesting conversation because I, I keep tripping out, like just looking at our city and knowing how 
banks give loans to apartment complexes because they can, there's, there's a certain level of assurance that their loan is going to be met and covered and paid back. Like mm-hmm. there's a, a lower risk in, uh, with an investor who wants, or a developer who wants to build a property. And so, um, economics and loans seem to constrain a lot of our architectural possibilities. And then the, that dilutes to a kind of get it done architect who, yeah. you know, who's absolved into really the default vision of the bank. Yeah which is a weird. Well, and that even then pervades out culturally because people don't value Mm -hmm. good design. It's like, okay, well we just need to, we got a budget, we got a bottom line, we got a timeline, we got to meet all these things. Mm -hmm. And then now you're just in subpar architecture and that's what Mm -hmm. people then get used to. So it's like, you know, I mean, I have a ton of people, you know, they always tell me, oh, well, yeah, I see that all the time. Like we can just do that. And it's like, yeah, but that doesn't mean you should. And that doesn't mm-hmm. mean it's actually yeah. designed well just because you see it a lot. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, that's a great point. It and doesn't mean it's good. I think a, a thing that we, we discount a lot. And I think when we, we get to these points where we have conversations about like why something like a museum or a gallery would be important. And we talk about on here a lot that you, you don't know what you don't know. But also when we think about the, the standard idea of imagination or creativity, it's also hard because a lot of times you can't imagine what you haven't seen. Mm-hmm. And so having anything mm-hmm. kind of run that sort of like status quo route, like it just reinforces a, a bad or lack of imagination. Yeah. And so you go through neighborhoods and somebody's like, can you believe that thing they're building over there? And mm-hmm. I'm like, I mean, it's, it's within the vernacular, even if it may have a different accent to it. Yeah. But it's not bad, but it, it stretches some of the boundaries here. Yeah. I don't think it's a bad thing mm-hmm. to get out of that rut sometimes. Yeah. Not bad meaning bad, but bad meaning good. <laughs> What's that song from? Run DMC, dude. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> it was Dre last week today. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> brain debris. Yeah, 100%. Literal brain um, debris right there. <laughs> yeah. It was yeah. Outcast uh, episode before that. So, yeah. Thankfully, but, thankfully, Cody's not here to clarify. Right. <laughs> but yeah, I think, you know, there, there are places within our own city where um, like we talked about, you, you can see like, okay, that's a North side house. That's a Churchill house. That's a fan house. Like you just kind of know it, but there's still these different uh, waivers and things that happen. Um, one thing that I am interested in, because this is a fun conversation when we talk about place, mm-hmm. um, is uh, historic preservation districts. Ooh, um, because, a lot of fun. Uh, I, you know, knowing a number of folks who live in different ones, um, mm-hmm. they talk about how hard it is to like replace a picket on their fence mm-hmm. um, or uh, repaint their house the exact same color, but because colors fade over time, people think it's a different color. And so you have to go for a whole like, group of people to talk about how you can do that. Um, <laughs> so there's, there are so many different Katie's variables. How, so how, real, how real do you want me to get right I mean, now, you can Gareth? Be as real as get as real as you feel comfortable I getting. I think the, 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 the question really it's is hard like, to hold there, back there are on this so one. many variables in architecture that like, I, Ryan yeah. and I probably are never dealing with a number of the sort of things no way. that you would have to with this to where you could say- I'm dealing with stomach aches more than I'm dealing with what, <laughs> yeah. But I mean, you could have like, your client could be on board. You could have the perfect thing. Everybody's correct. The budget is uh, good for everybody. You've got all your people lined up. And then some like crotchety person on a neighborhood board mm-hmm. is like, I don't like yeah. it. Your windows don't match. <laughs> yeah. So what, I mean, how do you navigate those things? What sort of impact does, does that have on projects? Like just for those of us who don't know. 
this is why <laughs> I was like, I can't do historic preservation. Um, cause they get so into the minutia mm-hmm. of like, we just have to replicate what was, um, it can be very aggregate aggravating and it can really derail projects and it can really upset clients. And that's always, I love my job. That's the worst part of my job yeah. is having to like walk a client through, you know, I know you don't want to do this, but we just have to appease a board and you're going to have to just hold your nose and get through it. Mm. Um, yeah, it can, it can really, really upset people. And it's just because, and it doesn't even, most of the time the argument isn't even logical that mm. the board is putting before clients and they're just like, but I don't understand why I have to do this. And I'm like, it's politics. We adopted the standard in 1983 yeah. and uh, somebody would have to go through a large process of bureaucracy well, to change it. Right. And the aggravating thing is like those boards change. So it's like you might get a really stodgy board that just, you know, they just, it's the letter of the law and you got to do it this way. And this is, we're just not going to approve anything we just don't like. And then you could wait, you know, a year or two, you get a new board and they're much more lenient. So it like, mm. even within, you know, it, the, it, the city, it's, they don't even have there's sort of not a consistency among mm-hmm. people on the board. So it's like, you don't even, you don't even know what you're going to get sometimes. So with all these, these different variables that are there, <laughs> all the different groups, mm-hmm. um, you know, cause it's not like artist, client, artist, buyer, artist, gallery, right? It's, it's, it's like Katie versus 75 organizations, groups, people, and preferences. Yeah. Where do you start? You mean with the design concept? Just period. With all of that, knowing all those things are the walls around you. Those are your constraints. How, where do you start? Um, where do you, Katie, start? Where yeah. do I start? Yeah. I start with a conversation with the client because it's sort of like, how do you know what you're looking at till you figure out, you know, where's, where's the project? What do you want to do? How big is it? How much do you want to spend? You know, like, what are you, what do you like about what you currently have or spaces that you've been in or what more importantly, what don't you like about those things? And then let's not do that. And then from there, it's just kind of like, okay, well, what does zoning say? Are we allowed to do this stuff? And then you just make sure that you're within the realm of what you can do. And then you just start going. Mm-hmm. And then, and does that, you know, what does that turn into? That turn into like uh, pencil drawings for you? Like for where, me, yeah. it, it depends. Mm-hmm. It depends if I have a, um, sometimes with some projects you can hit it pretty quickly. And mm-hmm. if I can hit it pretty quickly, I go right into like 3d modeling and get something out and show the client like, Hey, are we on the right track? If there's a lot going on, I got to work it out. Like I gotta, yeah. I go through, I have a really iterative process. So I go through a lot of sketches, a lot of hand drawings, a lot of perspectives to try to just work through some of those things. And then I get into 3d because the 3d is a thing that clinches it with people. They're like, yeah. oh, now I see. Mm-hmm. People yeah. usually can't look at plans. They're like, yeah, you can't this doesn't it. mean anything. So once you th- show them that 3D image, that's when they're like, oh yeah, now I understand what you're talking mm-hmm. about. Cause you can tell, you can tell like you're walking through plans with people and they're like, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. What about, um, so there's where you start and I guess I'm thinking about, and I don't want to, put us on the spot to go into um, difficult territory, but I at least want to like note there's like environmental factors that are, so I guess I'm thinking of like, is <laughs> this is going to be a dumb way, a hyperbolic way of asking the question is architecture an endangered species because of sort of the global economy 
because of the way we're educating people. So like when you think about the sciences and math, et cetera, and because of things like um, there are givens in the way that we think about building materials. Mm-hmm. And then there are assumptions about what a green, you know, there's assumptions about the climate and, and, you know, uh, huge discussions on, on what is going to be good green spaces, you know, uh, renewable energy. Like there's all of these questions. And then there is even sort of the, um, you throw into that the, the slow drip of smart cities, you know? So like, and it's a weird, I'm just saying like, do you, am I, is that a, is that a whack question to consider? Or do you think about that? Is that like there at all in the back of your mind? Like where, where are you at with that? Like, how do we, how do we think about that? I, I guess I'm just thinking like, there's a time where you can make a beautiful cathedral. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and you could be like, we're gonna spend a hundred years and there's places and do this and do this. Yeah. And there's like 160 year old pieces that are st- yeah. still being worked on. Yeah. That's right what I would, there's an example of that in Barcelona mm-hmm. and Tony Gaudi. I don't know yes. if you've ever seen his stuff. Oh my gosh. His Sagrada di Familia mm-hmm. or whatever it's called. Like, I mean, he died. I don't even know the early 1900s. They are still working on that building. It's they never finished crazy. it. It's nuts. Yeah. I was we don't Barcelona have a concept once. for that. In like, no. no, we don't because we're we so don't, lame. we're so, I feel like architecture just has gotten so away from craft, mm-hmm. you know, like it's, you've separated all these things. Like my, so I don't know, starting like middle school, I just was super enamored with anything middle ages, medieval architecture, like the culture, the art, the architecture. I'm like, that's where it's at because it was so integrated. They were so like, it's about the craft of it. It's artistry, architecture, all the things yeah, in one beliefs, thing. Cultural beliefs, yeah, theological it's beliefs. Everything. Yeah, it's everything, it's so rich. Yeah. So I just studied that for a really long time and we are so far from that. I don't know. I feel like I'm not quite answering your question. No, you know, no, honestly, like yeah. I don't, I don't like the whole green thing. I mean, I think there's, there's a sense of we have to be mm-hmm. okay. At its very basic vernacular architecture should just by necessity be green. Like if you are orienting your building in a certain way, if you are using certain materials, all these kinds of things, it could just naturally do that. You don't have to like make it a thing, it's just good design. And I feel like everything in what you were talking about is just making every part of architecture its own separate bureaucracy, mm-hmm. when really architecture is a holistic thing that should just naturally include all of that stuff. And so my beef with it, or how I deal with it, is basically I ignore it and I just do my thing. And I'm like, this is how I think architecture should just be thought about and made. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, ultimately, that's why I was like, dude, I gotta bounce and start my own firm because I just wanna make really great space for people the way I feel like it should be made. Mm-hmm. And that's not saying I have all the answers, mm-hmm. but there's like an intentionality and a stewardship of people's dreams, their, their, the way they wanna function, their budget, the economy, you know, the environment, all the things, it should all just be thought about. It shouldn't yeah. be, it shouldn't be it should compartmentalized. Just be yeah. yeah. And wow. so I feel like we've gotten away from that, but I think that's a cultural thing. Like I think that's a, you know, architecture is coming out of a culture of people who don't think that way anymore. Yep. So it's it's totally that's my, devaluing, that's, and that was my whole question about it being endangered. Yeah. Is how can we how can we do it? You know, because I I shared with you, you know, Laura and I were talking, and, and I was telling Laura some time ago. I've been reading a lot of books on built mm-hmm. environment, and you know, just thinking through these things. And um, you know, I was like, and I told you this, like both of you guys, I 
when you when you look at like mar like architectural marvels, there's all the ones that that we know of, but there's things that are just incredible that that are less notable, but but worthy of of being noted. Um, and you know, people travel just to see architectural works amongst yeah. other things, right? Yeah. I've done it. Yeah, um, and I I look at some of our most recent architectural developments that are supposed to be notable that shall not be named yet again. I think um, I know which one. Yeah. Um, I mean, I went to a library yesterday that was better in Verina, Verina Library, shout out. I like that better than it's other buildings. Beautiful building. Um, felt integrated into that environment mm -hmm. um, in, in the little tucked away in the little mountain or the little hill in the, the forest. Um, but we don't build things that people are going to pilgrimage to in 20, 30, 40 years. Mm -hmm. Like, you, you, we don't we don't build anything like we don't like our our uh, residentials typically are not they're not made in such a way that they're meant to endure in an impressive yeah, sort yeah. of historic historic making way you know they're meant to signify the uh, preferences and values and the wealth of the of the the mm -hmm. patron person that will live there, mm -hmm. but like when you start thinking through this, you're like, we don't really have a culture. Mm -hmm. There's no uh, to your point. It's a plurality of bureaucracies that are atomizing into pluralities of bureaucracies, and you can't build anything out of that level of um, incoherence. Right. So yeah, like I don't think we're going to have architecture in the future that anybody comes back here to see and go, wow. Well, I mean, so much of, I feel like the built environment around us is, you know, we say this word a lot on here, but it is transactional. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a, hey, we have a, we have a plus 14% housing need in this area and here's six acres. So mm. let's subdivide it and mm. chop up these things and put down mm -hmm. houses every two and a half months. Yeah. And you got three floor plans with four finishes in the kitchen and two different types of stone. Mm -hmm. And somehow you're going to feel like this isn't going to kill you slowly over time as a cultural demoralizer. And it's going to dictate how many kids the, the, that can actually exist. I mean, we're yeah. going and, to control right. the population. Where you work yeah. and how the streets are and whether or not there is green space and what this that and it's yeah. like it, it is it is rough because um i mean even in my neighborhood there's a thing being built which is a terrible disgusting monstrosity <laughs> monstrosity that i would say is um that's just visually speaking i wasn't going to bring it up but i, I see that it's being built over there it's yeah. terrible it's sad and it's and it really is it's it's a uh, it's um throw some i-beams deep enough in the ground slap some aluminum on the side of the thing and call it architecture um but also it's being thrown up well, in a number of it's days. It's not capital A. <laughs> no, it's, uh, yeah, it's architecture, yeah. but it's not architecture. It's not. Um, yeah, the there's, the, but there's, there's no like soul to it. There's, it's not a thing. Yeah. It's one, it's something that like I look at it and I'm like, look at all the work they're going, uh, that they're doing to build an abandoned building in 20 mm -hmm. years. Like, that's, that's what I was just thinking. They're I was like, yeah. I, that's I was like, in five years, buildings. in five years, oh, that thing's that gonna be falling down. That's a good yeah. right there. Yeah, well, I mean, it's oh, like, and it, it's the way that you that hurts. Like, You pass by like a strip mall, and you're yeah. like, yep, that's squalor. Thanks yes. for building it. <sighs> and and here's the thing: is you could be listening to this conversation and be like, listen to those like really super cynical people. But but here's the thing: is nobody's sitting yeah. here going, you know what, America, Mwah, to the just the demise of suburbs and how disgusting yeah. your uh, non vernacular based architecture is. Right? Yeah. Nobody's sitting there being yeah. like, let's let's get the suburban sprawl award 
at yeah. the architecture yeah. finals this year. Yeah. Um, so we can pass it <laughs> I only work at that. <laughs> That's right. I'll tell you what. His career was marked by superb mini mall, strip mall, yeah. uh, outdoor mall. He was the modern houses. master of the mini mall. That's right. He could put together a Walmart. Yeah. Can I tell you? Now, his name was Don Dolphard. <laughs> that's not he to say designed the Walmart. <laughs> and that's not to say that these things aren't like needed. But it is to say, why do we need to resort to kind of the lowest common denominator, exactly. fastest, Money. most efficient, yep. most industrialized, factory built yeah. sort of thing? Especially when there are some really fabulous prefabricated factory built options that have care and concern and consideration put into them to make beautiful structures yet we're like dropping walmart's like time bombs. dude it just you know you're looking at like amish craftsmen yeah yeah, yeah i was gonna Holy say smokes dude it's but time, time it's that, money it's but it's also the lack of skill like people don't have those craft skills anymore yeah you know i mean it's hard to find good craftsmen it, yeah i agree and so then what it's do you part do of that. i mean like that so that's why i brought smart cities it's, it's as if you know, so, you know, you have technology displaces technology. So like the example used in the past from this book by a guy named Andy Crouch, you know, it's like the uh, um, horse and buggy had a culture mm -hmm. uh, for travel. And and then the, uh, you have your in, roadside inns. It's a whole cultural environment. You know, I'd love to go back and just pull up in a buggy and just experience it once. I don't want to live there. I just want to go back and experience yeah, the, totally. the historical, you know, experience yeah. of that. But you know, and so then people tend to your horses as a whole thing. And then the brilliance of the highway, super highways and you know, just mobility, cars, uh, soon the horse is gone and, and your your sort of roadside spot turns into a roadside diner. The, the culture starts to shift. Now you got gas stations that start mm -hmm. to push on diners and like, you know, it's just the natural consequence of something new displacing something old. and. And, and that's sort of what happens is, you know, at some point something becomes obsolete or um, it becomes like historic and then preserved in a certain mm -hmm. amount. Mm -hmm. um, so when I was being tongue in cheek, but use, saying these architecture um, in, the, in the kind of assumed way, I think intuitively we're thinking about it, is it, is it an endangered species? Um, it's because when I think about where we're at from a belief system, like, like if you said, what's the default beliefs of people, which has to do with their actions, mm -hmm. you know, not just their statements. Um, it is very transhumanist. And so smart cities, like thinking through where people want to be, yeah, whether we should want to or not, has this sense that it, it accommodates a new kind of material, a new kind of experience, not saying they're good or bad, kind of don't think they're good, um, which displaces sort of the haptic experience of um, crafted well yeah. architectural spaces, both yeah. exterior and interior, I agree. right? With, yeah. with um, the holistic, okay, so let me give you an example. I went to um, last summer, you know, I spoke about this last, last year probably, but I went to Notre Dame's campus mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you know, it's a Catholic school. There is a theological underpinning for how they perceive architecture, landscape design, interior spaces. It was impeccable in its holistic, cohesive mm -hmm. state. Mm -hmm. So when you walked, uh, your your literal experience of it was like complete. I mean, it was really rich, mm -hmm. really satisfying. And I could nerd out on what the effects were together. I mean, I was geeking out with my kids on 
the strategic places that certain types of trees were planted uh-huh. and maintained to complement certain arches in yeah. the architect, right? It's almost nearly exactly the same angle. It was kind of, it, it was like, we're so far from that kind of thoughtfulness. Yeah. And so what that did was that rendered a certain kind of um, peace that is related to their yeah. theological convictions. Uh-huh. So, so there's a system of thought and belief that is being embodied and expressed through the design mm-hmm. and making of the space, both interior and exterior. And then there's an interior exterior harmony mm-hmm. um, that goes past your preference. Um, it, uh, in terms of like, it's not just about whether I prefer it or not, it's about what it does and yeah. what it represents. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it's just what it does to you. You know, like, I mean, when you're in a building, you should respond to it mm-hmm. in a certain way. I mean, I'm thinking of like, cathedrals it's like these things are massive buildings they're designed in certain ways but when you go into them you immediately are quiet mm-hmm. you know it's like you have a very visceral response yeah there's a hush that comes over you. there's a very visceral response and it's just sort of like that does something to you yeah. that you know you have this experience and then you take it into mm-hmm. other things and i mean i just i don't think architecture has that impact anymore because people aren't yeah. thinking about it and it's it's people on so safe spaces down, yeah which is more like the way you booby uh you uh kid proof a room right which means all the interesting stuff is eliminated yeah yeah i was gonna say you know the, the we want to talk a little bit about the importance of the built environment what you're talking about ryan is like really like the transhumanist aspect of this is we we our, our interactions move less and less mm-hmm. toward like built, physical, tangible. Mm-hmm. Um, so anybody who has, who's out there like, well, come on, you guys talking about uploading consciousness again. That's not what's happening in architecture. And it's like, well, if you're vacating a space, it's the first step in a full retreat. Yes. You know, yeah. so it's, um, so there's that. But um, I, I, when I look around like urban spaces, um, I look at some of the well-designed urban spaces in the world. Um, and one of the things that's there is, designated set apart spaces for nothing to be there. Right. we call these things green spaces, not just, uh, not yet developed spaces, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, that they actually are integral because, um, anywhere in, in a, in a space, you need places of busy and places of rest. Like Mm -hmm. you're talking about, right. So you have the kind of the matrix of like things you can touch, things you can sometimes touch, things you can never touch, Mm -hmm. um, as like a way to set up a home. And, um, I look at green spaces as one of those, like in terms of city bureaucracy, that should be one of those never touch, mm-hmm. right? Like leave these, mm-hmm. make them as much as possible. So within that, um, I know that we have a tendency, Katie, to think of architecture as like just the the buildings, but how do things like green space and open space, how do those factor into the thinking that you have about how a building can function and live over its lifetime. Especially in terms of your values, let's say like what right. you care about. Yeah. I think it's huge because you can't, I personally, I can't think of a building without thinking about the place in which it sits mm-hmm. and the interior. So it's a whole immersive experience. I mean, you have to get to a building by getting through <laughs> some sort of space. So it's not like you just arrive and materialize at the front door and you walk in. So it's the whole thing. I mean, it's maybe to your point, Ryan, it's thinking about how is the space around the building. I mean, insofar as you can have an opportunity to design it, you know, some sometimes you're just in a city lot and there's sort of no, yeah, there's yeah. no opportunity for that. Um, but if you're talking about where you have an opportunity to actually manipulate it, I mean, it's the whole experience mm-hmm. because your whole experience of a building is from the minute you step onto the property or wherever that yeah. 
that initial Sometimes design realm starts when it, when the moment when it you're catches driving, your eye. Uh, yeah, when you're yeah. driving by. I mean, it's the whole thing, and so it's all got to be integrated because yep. it's the point. I was making earlier, what do you see when you're looking out the windows? Yeah. Or what do you see if you're looking into the windows? Yeah. Or what do you see when you look up? I mean, it's, you know, we are mind, body, and soul beings. And so I think mm -hmm. our experience of space has got to be inclusive of all of those things. I mean, you're going to hear stuff when you might walk through gravel to get to the front door, or you might see the reflection of water or something like that, but that's all creating an experience or to your point, Gareth, imagination is something I think about a lot because mm -hmm. it's like when you're starting to think like, I mean, with architecture, you are literally thinking about how to create something that doesn't yet exist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that doesn't stop though. Once it does exist, I think I would argue that once you are in a space to kind of go back to the Gothic cathedral, whatever you're experiencing, that stimulates a certain sense of your imagination mm -hmm. of still what, what still is the unseen that I can't see yet that could be a reality through this experience. Yeah, that's, that's huge. And I, I think, you know, if you've gone through, I mean, I think pretty much almost any art program, design program, you're going to at least get touches of this in, in an art history class or, mm -hmm. or an art appreciation or whatever kind of things you're taking. Um, but there's a lot of literature from the past where people talk about the imaginative space of the built environment or um, the kind of spiritual uh spiritual experiences within spaces and what they mm -hmm. do. And I'd say in fact that probably a lot of late 19th century, early 20th century architecture is probably based on a lot of those concepts more mm -hmm. than like efficiency and industrialization mm -hmm. and just turning stuff mm -hmm. out like a cookie cutter. Um, is that, I mean, I mean, within your experience, do you, do you think that that is something that is, is, is focused on in architecture today? Do you think that there that are there conversations in that design space where they're like, "Hey, what is the imaginative space we're creating here for people? Like, are we helping people look up or just stay on their phones?" Mm. Mm. I think it depends on the type of project you're working on. Um, unfortunately, most of the time, no. Most of the time, it's like, "What are we doing to just make look some make something look cool?" Mm -hmm. And it's sort of like. Mm. Probably not. Although I did, when I was working on the Virginia War Memorial, that was interesting because it's very much a space for people to come. I mean, if you have a family member or something that had died, unfortunately, um, you know, it was, we had to do a lot of thinking about where can these people just come to grieve. Mm -hmm. um, so that was, you know, but that's a very specific type right. of architecture. Yeah, yeah. So that's not like pervasive in general design, but I don't, I also think architectural education has gotten distilled down to just diagramming. Like a lot of people aren't actually thinking about buildings. It's like, let's think about climate change or inclusivity or things like that. And they're sort of more focused on cultural issues than it is about um, the actual thought of good space. Well, yeah. I, I love what you said there. And what I would say, and I, I know you agree, is to a point you made earlier about the way we're subdividing into bureaucracies. Yeah. So it's like we've disconnected social issues from mm -hmm. phys physical issues, which are social issues, mm -hmm. or physicality or materiality or spaces, which are indeed, uh, and, and part of that is to untether what we do from any kind of uh, superseding belief in anything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so 
what happens then is it becomes just a trickle down of untethering of untethering of mm -hmm. self-eating. You know, you kind of have to displace the thing you're standing on to stand on the new thing that displaces the thing. And, and, and what, what that's really doing is just fracturing up things and making a part a whole, um, but also like sort of the Lord of all, Lord over all the other parts. And so, you know, a, a toenail can't be a head, right. you know, uh, and so it can't, it can't hold the weight of that. And so the only thing it can do is you can keep forcing it into a position it's not. But what it does is it flattens and collapses everything else into something lesser. And so yeah. again, like that's where you, that's where I, I, I really do, you know, it's like, we do talk about this a lot, but I think it's interesting. Like we, we didn't premeditate this conversation and you talked about ho the holistic nature of things and how yeah. there really is like, um, uh, a risk here as far as how we're, like people aren't being trained to craft things well mm -hmm. because, because if I think that everything is about self-reference, then crafting, when I see something well-crafted, I'm um, either enamored and inspired or more than most likely with most people, I'm just threatened by it because I think that you're just flexing your yeah. self-expression and you're like, no, no, no. They were expressing beliefs about something else bigger than mm -hmm. us. Like they weren't self-expressing. I mean, yeah. you can say that was a self that worked there but so there's a, a way in which the diminished worldview diminishes other worldviews that don't purport or support that worldview. And so everything becomes lesser and degraded and dwindled. Mm -hmm. And then you have a lack of vision and, and a lot of appropriation. So you got people who are like, I want it to look like, mm -hmm. you know, what that looks like. And you're like, yeah. well, it's the Instagram phenomenon. Yeah. You know, it's like, make it look like Instagram. You yeah. know, like I, we were looking at something, Gareth and I yesterday, and there was like a, an Instagram tour mm -hmm. of an external exterior environment. And you're like an Instagram tour, no. which is another way of saying, here's these picturesque places that contextually look like your middle of the road, idealized Instagram photo. Yeah. Oh, I want to throw up. Yeah. It was pretty terrible. That's not the way to experience buildings. Yeah. Or reality. It's just not, it's just not, I mean, you can't, I mean, there are buildings that I have been to that I, I mean, I literally walked into this one courtyard in San Lorenzo in Florence, Italy, and I literally just stopped. Uh -huh. Like I just, I walked in there. It was just this frame up to the sky. Yeah. You're in this courtyard, this beautiful like loggia. And I just stopped. And you can't get that from a picture or a virtual tour. <laughs> no, um, there's something, there's something that the built environment does to you that then affects you moving forward. It's like, that is an experience I will never, I have never, had in any sort of place since that. Well, I think, you know, what you're talking about, you, you mentioned kind of a um, mind, body, and soul of like all this stuff kind of together. Yeah. Um, and I think it might be easier for most folks uh, who are maybe not in conversations of architecture much to be like, okay, I get the, the mind of it. Like maybe like the logic, logical system of how things work and what you mm -hmm. have to have there. And, and I get maybe the body part of it and like how things are built and constructed. But like, I don't know, the soul part, might be something that's a little harder for folks to understand. Mm -hmm. um, but I think what you're talking about with this, this courtyard kind of feels like that. So how do you, how do you really make sense of that idea of like the soul of a building? Cause that can, that can sound super like metaphysical and ephemeral, mm -hmm. like what, like, but it, it seems like it's a very, very valid solid category for you. So how yeah. would you help us understand what that is like? Yeah. I mean, I've thought a lot about, you know, the sense of place. It's this very like, Weird. I mean, what is that? It's not a thing, but somehow the built environment creates it. Hmm. So, like I said, if we're if we're experiencing things as mind, body, and soul beings, it would only make sense that we could experience the world 
in somewhat of a similar way. <laughs> so I think buildings create a presence. I mean, they create a culture, they affect culture. I mean, you know, like if you go home to Mississippi, uh -huh. that's a very different feel yeah. than Richmond, Virginia. Yeah. Well, why is that? I mean, I would argue that the built environment is contributing to that a lot. I mean, it's a different architecture. Things are laid out differently. You're experiencing it differently. You're going to react to it differently. And all of those are sort of these intangible things that, you know, we, we necessarily experience when we're interacting. I actually think when you're talking about that, it makes me think this is going to, I, I think in a nutshell, which is super problematic to say, going to, be offensive. Do you think, right? Um, <laughs> I think we're moving away from a responsible, uh, a, a, we're moving away. We're retreating from responsibility to anything that can put us in a position to have to take responsibility for mm -hmm. it. Period. Period. So we're removed. We're moving away from that. Cause, cause so say it again, we're moving away from responsibility the responsibility of anything that we may have to take responsibility for, mm -hmm. which is to say there's a responsibility to make it. And then there's what it does and it may not do what I wanted. And I may have to take responsibility for that. And that yeah. may have consequences. So we're, we are moving in every possible way away from taking responsibility for anything except for that, which is always, um, in support of us not having to take responsibility for it mm -hmm. in the sense that it always ensures that we seem to be on the right. And what that's doing is that's moving us into a disembodied state because, mm -hmm. because everything that is thing, you know, thingliness, thingness mm -hmm. has a weight, a mass, a density, um, a, a, you know, to cultivate it would implies a kind of rigor, and so I'm not saying that there's not people that are rigorous, but they're rigorously working in a way uh, so as to remove any aspect of, of taking responsibility, mm -hmm. socially, physically, mm -hmm. spiritually, materially. And so we're creating a world with no responsibility. What does that mean? Well, um, that means that a lot of things then go away um, or don't are not tended to, so they decay. And the things that exist continuously exist with a default to someone else to be the one to take responsibility. Mm. Um, and uh, because the project of being human and existing on a planet is a joint effort, um, it's not really the kind of thing that any one person does, uh, um, you know, any human does in a supreme way over other humans. Mm -hmm. And so when we default to someone else to take responsibility uh, and we're living in a more of a transhumanist leaning direction, um, you're going to have what we have, like you're going to have bots, you're going to have, you're going to have people that are unqualified, but as long as the world is thin and immaterial, I can kind of Lord over it and, and be your, be your Lord, you know, and tell you what to do. Yeah. But, um, we are going, you know, so it's, you know, I really think that's at the heart of it. So then when you have people coming into experiences, they're looking for ways to avoid responsibility. And there's some good reasons for that, man. We, we come out of, I remember in the eighties, man, uh, lawsuits became a big thing, mm -hmm. suing people, the idea that, oh my gosh, I can just sue. And then it was like an explosion of lawyers and lawsuits and then new policies and like avoid, and it's like, you know, people can't even send emails now cause they're, they're like, yeah. I'm not saying an email cause I don't want to get yeah. sued. <laughs> yeah. 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 
yeah. done that. I think to add to your point a little bit too, I think sometimes the identity is a big piece mm-hmm. because I think architecture, you know, like sense of place, I think materials, way things are done are very heavily rooted in that. Like, you know, like I said earlier, growing up in Box County, there are just certain materials that are so indigenous to that area. You can look at it and you're like, oh, that's from Box County. Mm-hmm. But now people don't, it's like they don't care. It's yeah. like you anything could be built anywhere and you have no idea where it is because it's just all generic. Yeah. And there's no definition and there's no sense of identity. Mm-hmm. Or I mean, even just like, Modern air conditioning took away the need for, you know, like wraparound porches or mm-hmm. height of ceilings. Like there were these things that were so identifiable to certain, you know, architecture in certain areas that now you just, they're irrelevant. They don't matter. So people aren't going to build like that anymore. I'm not mm-hmm. necessarily saying in every case you should just do that. But um, there's this identity piece of it that I think has also started to kind of just evaporate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, all of this reminds me of a story that I'm pretty sure I've shared on this. I've at least shared it with y'all if I haven't mm-hmm. done it on the podcast. But um, all right, so I was living in Mississippi when Katrina hit. Um, the town I lived in was just completely demolished in so many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, the the house I grew up in, we pretty much lived in a construction zone for like three or four years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, we took a lot of the brunt of the hurricane itself. Whereas the city of New Orleans took the flooding that happened because of the hurricane. Mm. And so we're, so they had a very different type of damage. And so we heard a lot about the, the lower ninth ward uh, in New Orleans and it literally got washed away to the point where like out of hundreds, possibly thousands of homes, like a handful were still there. Wow. Demolished the whole place. And so of course there was a lot of interest because there was a lot of suffering, a lot of stuff that happened in New Orleans. So all these groups from all over the place were coming in to do different things. And a lot of architecture or design build programs were dropping in New Orleans and saying like, hey, we've, we've got a city that has to be rebuilt. It's a city that has a very specific type of soul to it. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's maybe one of the most identifiable cultural cities that still remains. I tell people all the time, New Orleans is the most European place in America because it is very much small neighborhoods, heavy vernacular. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just what you can tell. So... Um, a celebrity with good intentions came in and uh, Mr. Pitt decided he was mm-hmm. going to be doing uh, some of these build programs. Uh, he worked with some local schools mm-hmm. and they put some houses up in the ninth ward. And I remember a, a, a video where they were talking to one of the residents and from the sense of it, this may have been the first conversation with the residents. Um, and it was after some of these had already been built. Now you talk about a, an architectural vernacular, like New Orleans has it mm-hmm. and it's all based on a lot of stuff you're talking about. So you have, High ceilings, floor to ceiling windows mm-hmm. that can open throughout, mm-hmm. uh, being positioned in a way where the wind can go through. So the exactly. narrow homes act as a tunnel. Yeah. So you get this kind of natural air conditioning. Get that humidity out. Yep. Yeah. If you Shotgun replace it with houses. new humidity. Yeah. <laughs> but you have a lot of these things yeah. that are that make total sense and they still make sense today. Mm-hmm. So what these. Isn't that interesting? It is. They still make sense today. Yeah, they huh? still make what sense. What a concept. Because the thing is, like, if you've ever been in New Orleans in August, it doesn't matter if you got AC. Everything's sweaty. Like it it's so funny. Matter. You're just just so you put a note on that. It still lasts a day. That's part of the thing is mm-hmm. we're so disposable that we just assume through our lens everything is disposable. And you're it's like, not. actually, some things that last should still last. Well, to your point yeah. about like the environmental sustainability, like th- th- some of this is honestly just common sense. Yeah, <laughs> like <laughs> um, say that word. you know, if we would just 
think about it. Like, okay, well, heat the, rises. That's like, the role of design, right? It should, the role of design should be to be thinking about these yeah. things in a critical way in order to solve problems with creativity and imagination. Yeah. Like that exactly. should be design. Exactly. Yeah. And what, what Brad Pitt and other folks were doing by dropping these homes in New Orleans is they were going by uh, standards. Yeah. You know, HGTV. Air, yeah, <laughs> air quotes here. These are standards, yeah. right? So they were sustainability standards Building and they were design code. standards and they were, you know, trying to maximize footprints and yeah. like, you know, all the things that in a lot of other places have never worked well. Mm-hmm. So they dropped something. They were talking to this resident and uh, they're like, well, what do you think? And he's like, that's, that's hot garbage. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, uh, oh, oh, oh no. What? And he's like, it ain't got no soul. There's mm. nothing about that building. Mm-hmm. You've you've destroyed my neighborhood. Yeah, and they're like, "Well, your neighborhood is destroyed." Is destroyed, and he's like, "No, no." He's like, "These houses, this 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 is where I live. That is not a house from here." Mm. And it was like, kind of, they, people were blindsided because they were like, mm. "But we were giving you this wonderful thing, and like, it's not what we want. Yeah. It's not where we are." Yeah, there's a a, a regionalist vernacular yep. Yep. in that space yeah. that has a lot to do with how people understand space, yeah. where they are and how they interact with the world. And that's not to say you have to just go in there and replicate everything that right. was, but there's there's an intentionality of understanding the soul behind it. Like, okay, how can we, okay, everything was destroyed. We're going to fix it. And we're not just going to plop things down that look like they had always been there forever because we're just copying something. But there's a way to do it that that still evokes that Oh, that vernacular. Yeah. So the, um, I'm just talking, I'm going to talk a little bit more about Katrina because it was such a very visceral a big deal. point in my life. Yeah. Um, so the federal government came in uh, with a limp and a hard, hard level of ignorance um, and dropped all these like trailers. And they're like, here, you guys can live here. They had no idea what they were doing because this uh, government official had like overseen horse events instead of anything that meant he should be able to do the job um, as a FEMA director. So they dropped this down and they were like, oh, you guys have been living in there too long. Also, these things have a whole lot of formaldehyde in them. So people are getting super sick and have like lung issues. Of course. <laughs> Oops. Um, thanks, government. It's probably then, not sustainable. No. So they were like, mm-hmm. you, you can't have a family of five living in a recreational vehicle. So then they made these things that have, have come to be known as Katrina cottages which are these little shotgun cottages, tiny house sort of things. But they at least had a soul to them mm-hmm. because they had some of that vernacular. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they were not that much better than these crappy trailers. Yeah. And when I mean trailers, I mean literally like pull behind your truck, like to go camping for the for a week. Stuff people are doing now because they want to. Yeah. <laughs> and, it, and so Tiny House America. There, there were there were hundreds of thousands of these, but the little houses that they build, I mean, you still see some on the coast and they are around because they, they fit. They make sense. Like they had a larger porch, they had taller windows, they had a higher ceiling height. Mm-hmm. They had a lot of the things that yeah. you grew up with and understood mm-hmm. if you were from that area. Yeah. Um, and that soul was there and it, it doesn't take more work. It really doesn't. I think it that's really the doesn't. thing that probably, and we've had this conversation before, yeah. like that's the frustrating thing about it. Is when you when you put that little bit of good in front of design, that doesn't take a lot more. It mm-hmm. takes a different way of thinking, though. Yeah. Well, and it's also there's a listening component that Ooh. seems like it was missed there. You know, it's <laughs> like like if you don't actually listen to what your clients are telling you, I mm-hmm. mean, this that's that's one of the biggest deals I think in architecture is like, did you just listen to what the program was? 
Well, can you talk about that more? Because listening, um, I think we can, we can listen to what you're saying. We can hear in mm-hmm. a specific way, like, okay, listening is step one. And once I've done that, I move on to step two. Mm-hmm. But how much is listening a part of the whole process? It's, I would argue, probably the biggest part of it. Mm. Because like I said, I think that's going back to, I think architecture at its basic, it's a, it's a service. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're creating a building, people are going to live in this. It has to, there's a functional purpose to it. There's a lot of other things, but it's still like, you know, what do you need? How do you need this to function? Because that's why, I mean, you're spending money on this, like clearly it's got to work for you. And if you're not doing that, I think you've, you've failed. Hmm. So I think, you know, I think you can create a lot of beautiful things, but you can also listen in that. And I don't think, so Vitruvius, I don't know Mm -hmm. if you guys have read any of his stuff, but he had this thing like sort of like these three tenets of architecture. It's fermitas, utilitas, and and venustas. So it's uh, utility, which is your function, Um, firmness. It's like the durability of it. How, how, how is it built? And then there's the beauty. And so he's saying like these, you know, these like Captain Planet, when these three things align, (laughs) we have architecture. And I'm like, yeah, (laughs) that's, that was true. Then it's true. Now it's got a function. It probably should stand up longer than, you know, like a few years and not like start to deteriorate. Um, It's built to last and then it's beautiful. And I don't think I don't think any one of those things has to be ever compromised. Yeah, I feel like it, it is like too late. <laughs> I know. I was gonna say like people don't listen to that, but again, like people don't. No, who, who knows Vitruvius? Like, yeah. Well, that's like there's I do. A, if you're in any space of design, you've probably seen the graphic that's been floating around for ten or twenty years, and it's the kind of Venish diagram that is uh, good, cheap, and fast, mm-hmm. and how it's got the overlaps, and it's like it's like oh, you never can get all three, like, and so it and. And that's a very different sort of thing, but I feel like in the same sort of space, like that may be maybe just the way people think about it. They're like, oh, well, um, durable, good, lasting, all these sort of Beautiful. things. Like, oh, you just you just get two of them. No, maybe. you get all three. And that's <laughs> and that feels like it shouldn't be a fight, but it sounds like it <laughs> doesn't sound it like often, it's maybe the norm. Yeah. It, yeah. Unfortunately, it's not. And I think that's my biggest beef is like, why Why should we compromise? I mean, why are we, and maybe that's just a cultural thing. Maybe it's like, oh, well, I guess we'll just settle for two out of three. You know, we won't work that hard mm. or we won't listen or we won't, you know, we can't quite give you what you want, but it's cool. It's like. Mm. Unless we're building like a sports arena. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, so. I don't know. It's weird. Yeah. And then all of a sudden we put a lot of money into it and we're, you know. Yeah. I mean, hey, it's, it's modern perfect. day cathedrals. Yeah. They're modern day cathedrals. 100%. Yeah. Modern day Houses of worship. Yeah, 100%, dude. Concert halls yeah. and sports arenas. Yeah. yeah. And then used to be culture. shopping malls, but less and less. less, and yeah. less yeah. Um, yeah. Real quick, what what is like what is it like to like there's there's where you're at today, but there's the point where you're like, I'm going to try to do my own thing. Mm-hmm. Can you just say a little bit about like the challenge of that for you personally, like what, what did you have to think about? You know? Yeah. What, what goes into that? Cause that's yeah. the, you know, cause that's the entrepreneurial leap mm-hmm. into, I'm going to do this. Yeah. And you start thinking about it and you're like, should I do this? Mm-hmm. For me, I think it was, um, like I said, when I set out, I don't think I ever thought I would start my own business. 
but I grew up with a dad has his own business. My uncle and my grandfather had their own business. My brother started his own business a while ago. So it's like sort of pervasive. And I think it's, it's almost to the, the norm that I don't think until I actually started working, I don't think I realized until I was like kind of out of that environment that I was like, Ooh, you know, maybe it started kind of like bubbling up. And I think it just in everything that we're talking about and making those compromises, it's like understanding. I mean, there's like the personal aspect of, of it is just sort of like how much more control do I just want to personally have over my life mm -hmm. and the trajectory of that. But from a business side, you start to realize like, I don't know if I can actually do the kind of architecture that I want to do and actually serve clients the way I feel like they should be served or like contribute to the practice of architecture the way that I want to if I'm working under somebody else mm -hmm. who's controlling these things or who maybe isn't gonna give me the room that I need to actually do it. Right. So I think that just kind of, it was a confluence of a lot of stuff that just percolated and it was like, gotta go, yeah. gotta do it. Yeah. So yeah. then when you do it, it, then you, you know, where you're at now, you're like, it, it just squares. Yeah. So, so now it's it squares. Like, there's a different amount of stress or a different kind of stress, but it's like the opportunity, like I said, to feel like you can actually serve and uh, work to serve other people the way you feel like mm -hmm. is best is totally worth it. Mm -hmm. So with a, with the trajectory of your career, okay. So you say you, you come through undergrad and grad school and you're kind of learning some of the stuff, but, but the expectation within, uh, the field maybe that like you're gonna you're gonna learn very specific things in the internships and jobs. Mm -hmm. You go into like a medium sized firm, you start learning things through a number of projects. Um, but there's probably enough people there where you get to kind of like tunnel vision on a few things, so you're not having to juggle all the balls at the same time or wear all the hats. You go into a smaller firm, probably putting a few more hats on. Now it's you, and you have the whole collection of hats, mm -hmm. and they're constantly Wearing on your head. So, um, what? What is that like? Because it is a, it is a trade-off, right? Because the way you're talking about wanting to have your own firm is to make the things you want to make in the way that you believe architecture should be practiced. Mm -hmm. But the trade-off is you do get to put more of those hats on. Mm -hmm. So, so what is what is that sort of thing like? How do you how do you process through that? How would you maybe I don't know speak to somebody who's like I don't want to wear the hats, but I want to do the stuff. Yeah, that's a tough one for me because I'm one of those people that I'm just like I'll just do it all and I'll just you know. I don't know. Like I said, I started working when I was five. I watched parents who just, they, they just grind, you know? And, you know, my brother started the same way. He's doing his own business. So for me, I'm just like, I like it. Yeah. <laughs> just like, it's, it's more figuring out, okay, when to stop. Mm. Um, it's like, okay, it's 10 o'clock at night. I could just, I could keep working, you know? Cause I just, I like what I do. I'm like, I'm drawn or have an idea. I'll just keep going, but it's like, no, you should probably just stop. Hmm. So that, I think it's like trying to figure out that balance of just put it away for a while, mm -hmm. look at it refreshed. Um, so honestly, like I, I think I was intimidated because I wasn't sure like the whole like marketing, getting yourself out there, mm -hmm. networking thing has always been a little like weird for me. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, I have to go yeah. to those like coffee things in the morning. We talked last week about our joy of cocktail parties. Yeah. Yeah. It's just not that's my, just, that's not, not my job. Yeah. So that's the part that I was like, gosh, this is going to be terrible. <laughs> um, but it's just more like, I've just been calling people and doing that kind of stuff. So that was the, the thing that I wasn't looking forward to, but everything else, I'm just like, I was kind of already in some ways doing a lot of the stuff, but mm -hmm. 
I just, yeah, I'm just one of those people. I'm just like, just give it, just whatever I got to do. I'm just going to, I'm, I'm either in or out. So yeah. it's like, I'm all in. So I'm all in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I got, maybe we close with this question. Yeah. What you got? Is there like, you know, you, you may not, so maybe a goofy question, but do you have like a dream project that you're like, if I ever get the chance, I got this thing in my head that I want to see. That's a tough question. I don't think I've ever had that. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think I've ever been like, there's just one thing I got to do. I think I'm just like, I just like my job. I like doing my job. I like mm-hmm. doing good architecture. And I just like having clients that are supportive. I mean, yeah, up to now, like excited. I just very grateful to have clients that are excited and supportive. And it's like. Ian was pretty excited. He's awesome. Yeah. I love that guy. He talked about you with yeah. pretty excitedly when he's on the podcast. Yeah. So he's Ian's great. He's an okay so, kind of guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Shout out to So, I mean, that's and a great And we are project. in the Tuttle house and right so, now. Yeah. You are in the Tuttle house. And I think you've. you've working on a Unrelated to us, you're working with the Tuttles right now. Doing the world of Tuttles and they are good. Shout out to the yeah. Tuttles. Yeah. Wonderful. He was actually people. calling me while we really? were recording. So. <laughs> Man. That's funny. Hi, that's Sam funny. and Sarah. We're. <laughs> Just gonna ignore. <laughs> you were calling. Me. I was texting you. Yes, um, there's a, yeah, there's a reason Ryan awesome. didn't pick up the phone. Yeah, I was like, "Sorry, Sam, I'm recording." Yeah, <laughs> Katie. That's <laughs> great. Yeah, no, they are awesome. So, but yeah, I think it's like having a like maybe I shouldn't say this, but having like an okay project with great clients is worth a ton. Yeah, and it's like the interaction and the relationships that come out of it that make projects memorable. You know, like yeah. I said earlier, I mean, Maestro Station was amazing, but I learned so much on it. Sure. And it was like just the interactions and the experiences and the memories that are like, well, that was a great project. Mm-hmm. And I, I couldn't that. have chosen I that. Love that. Like I just, it came and it's just sort of like, those are the things that stick with me. I think yeah. more than anything. That's the humanizing. Yeah. I think that's a great place to end because I, I always say, and I've said it for years, that at the end of every cultural endeavor or thing that is made at the end of that is human relationships of one kind or another. It's either uh, narrowing to certain people or, but it's always at the end of the day, um, the ends are relationships. And to hear that is not to shortcut the process or to instrumentalize the project to get to that, but it's just necessary. You're either working towards the diminishing of humans or the, flourishing of humans, yeah. you know, so it's, it's, um, two directional, you know, there really is, there's no neutrality. I don't believe it, it's either humanizing or not. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just, I can unpack that all day, but so I love that you would, you know, you would close with that and say like the memorable projects have something to do with the relationships with the people, yeah. even if it's not like a spectacular, massive project, but a spectacular encounter with mm-hmm. people making a, a kind of a, um, middle of the road project, mm-hmm. you know, not, not, the, yeah. not this grandized thing. I think that's pretty, pretty wonderful. Yeah, well, and that was part of the whole reason for starting my own business is because I can relate to people in a way now that I couldn't before mm-hmm. working with somebody else. And that for me was really big. Mm-hmm. It was like, I gotta be, I gotta be able to help and serve these people. And cause that's at the end of the day, it's still a service and there's, you know, a relationship and a repertoire that comes out of that. And so that was like, this is, this is the thing. So if I need something built, where, where can we find you? Like yeah. online, like what do we do? Messenger have, pigeon or yeah, shout to the void? A website that's being developed, cortezarchitecture.com. Katie, cortezarchitecture.com. Just cortezarchitecture.com. Oh, Cortez, I like that. I do too. Actually, Short I like that a lot. Sweet. Yeah. So that's forthcoming. So if you all need something, 
be on the lookout yeah. for cortezarchitecture.com. Yeah, that's right. Um, I think that's it. Yeah, this I is great. It's a great I mean, conversation. I mean, I'm I'm a I'm an architecture junkie, so we will have more of these conversations offline, I'm sure, as we yeah. already have, Katie. Um, I love it. Then um, we may have you back in the future yeah. to do a part two to this, because I think mm-hmm. there's there's a few more things I'd love to get at. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll stuff that. I also can. I also have in my brain a kind of a um, bigger panel dis- podcast discussion or a couple parter on uh, like just city planning. Like, if, like how do we build a, a better city? Yeah, I would love to do like a yeah. um, discussion on yeah, I think it'd be great. A, an exercise on how to build a better city and, and bringing people in. Yeah, and I mean that's the other thing that I feel like architecture is kind of losing is its ability to operate at different scales because mm-hmm. I think you you can't only think at the scale of the building. I mean, to kind of go back to points earlier, it's like you have to think at the, the regional scale, mm-hmm. the city scale, the street scale, the building scale, the detail yes. scale. Like you have to operate at all those levels in order to make something coherent and sufficient. And I think that's getting getting lost. So yeah. Yeah. For sure. Well, I think it's an intriguing point to leave y'all dangling on. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that there's definitely some more conversations about this coming mm-hmm. up in the future because you know, we never tap out these conversations. Yeah. Um, but like we always say, and we always mean, you are a fantastic audience. We do love each and every one of you and we will catch you next time. Bye. You've been listening to Shaco Art Speak, a production of Shaco Art Space. We are an independent nonprofit art gallery in Richmond, Virginia. We can be found online at ShacoArtSpace.com and in real life in historic Shaco Bottle.